Hello, friends. Welcome to Alps, a leadership podcast series. Ariel Santiago here bringing you the latest episode featuring Julian A. Rose and Kayla Tate as spoken word artists. Additionally, featuring staff members Cerise Blue and Nicole Young-Turner. Before our episode, I wanted to give a quick disclaimer because there are parts of the episode where there are high-pitched noises and sounds that will be within the next four minutes. If you are sensitive to any media or high-pitched sounds, please feel free to forward on to the next four minutes ahead. We look forward to your feedback from this episode and I hope you enjoy listening. So my name is Kayla Tate, but I go by the stage name Sarabi Mishan, and I will be sharing a spoken word piece titled Killing Me Softly. That is the sound of a heartbeat of a dying culture. The sound of a heartbeat of a dying people, my people. Our hearts have been beaten to the point where we barely have a pulse. Will Smith couldn't even save us seven pounds. The black community is broken. Our community has been broken. It never had a fighting chance. That's why I never understood why they called it reconstruction, period. See, they threw us in a war zone disguised as a construction site to make us think that we were doing something. Then when they felt like we were onto them, they traded our weapons in for cash and sold us the American dream. And they've been riding on his coattail ever since. (laughs) You know, it's funny that in this deck of cards that we've been dealt in life, the dealer has somehow convinced us that we were the jokers. Distinguished by being more colorful than the rest in the stack when in fact we are the kings and queens, hence as to why they too show up decorated respectfully in a black suit. Have y'all ever seen or heard of an owner of a gambling spot get mad when they see that you have a chance of winning? Because that means that you get to put a hand in his pot. Well, doesn't that sound all too familiar in reference to our society? As a people, we were never intended to be anything more than the money changes. As a group, we have accumulated almost no wealth. We are slaves to the wage. And, and, and our women are just seen as a joke, you know, just something good for your men to poke. And we can't forget about how our men are seen as a threat so much, in fact, that they are the lifeline to that school-to-prison pipeline. Well, sir... You can't take from me no more because I have nothing left to give you. You can't rape me no more because I will no longer bend over backwards because I'm tired of you and the system effing me and my people over. I will no longer be made a mockery in this so-called democracy. So, mister, because you continue killing me softly, you just lost one. 
I will be the X factor in this equation because apparently nothing even matters when it comes to caring for my people and I. To you, everything is everything. Well, you can continue to do wop when it comes to that thing, but know that from the, this point on, you should no longer be miseducated about the ways of our community. And you, yes, you, can tell him I said it. Today, I have the immense honor to be joined by Nicole Young-Turner and Cerise Blue. Nicole Young-Turner is the founder of Kaleidoscope Village and chair of TFA Metro Atlanta's Prison Board of Directors, is a social justice innovator and courageous champion for the LGBTQ plus visibility and equity in communities of color. Her identity as a queer Southern Black woman fuels her passion for and lifelong ed dedication to educating, mobilizing, and unifying underrepresented communities. As a Metro Atlanta 2011 alumni and staff leader, Nicole has played an integral role in designing and establishing national diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, including launching the LGBTQ plus community, Native Alliance, and military veterans initiatives in 2014 and 2016. She is back on staff as an RME with a mission to amplify intersectional representation in our core. And Cerise Blue is a 2016 Charlotte alum that fell in love with education by learning about the prison pipeline with her criminal justice degree from North Carolina A&T State University. Attending an HBCU allowed her to learn more about her own identity, culture, and history as a Black woman, but also gave her a campus full of professors that allowed her to explore those same elements while also learning about our country's justice system and its consistently oppressive nature towards the Black community. Cerise shifts gears to take on a life of community ag advocacy and student development in the classroom. She taught ninth and 10th grade English in Charlotte, North Carolina, before joining Teach for America's staff to work as a recruiter for the HBCU profiles. Her overall goal, goals are to ensure that she uplifts the needs of her BIPOC peers, specifically advocating for more equitable experiences for all Black people in any space that she requires. So that's a quick bio of our guest today, and I'm going to introduce Nicole Young-Turner to tell us a little bit more about herself. Hey everyone, um, thank you so much Ariel for inviting me here today. Um, like Ariel so eloquently introduced, um, I'm Nicole Young-Turner. I was a Metro Atlanta core member where I taught fifth grade. Um, I'm also from Atlanta, so definitely one of those unicorns, um, an Atlanta native. Um, and I'm just really excited to be here. Um, this is October 2020, um, and Sunday is National Coming Out Day. Um, so really um, excited to give voice and visibility um, to our LGBTQ folks who are also from communities of color, um, and also elevate um, some of the um, challenges and opportunities um, that we are facing um, during this racial reckoning and this is all around transition um, in our culture. So thank you so much. And thank you, Cerise, um, for being here as an ally. Thank you, Nicole, for your beautiful introduction. And I would like to now segue into Cerise Blue telling us a little bit more about herself. Yeah, that one, I'm 
just so excited that we get to do this together. Um, me and Nicole have these conversations all the time. So being able to have them, I guess, with an audience, um, you guys really messed up. Shouldn't have gave us the floor. It's over for it. Um, but yeah, I think that um, I'm, I'm a Durham native, so I'm a North Carolinian. I'm a Carolina girl, I guess. Um, and I really, 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 really love black people. Um, I really, 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 really love black culture. Um, and I have really appreciated my opportunity on staff to expand my understanding of what blackness means or even looks like the self work, um, learning more about the needs of my community, especially as a middle class black woman realizing that while I grew up believing that a lot of me was oppressed, there were a lot of me, a lot of parts of me that also had a lot of privilege. Um, and so wanting to give back to people that look just like me, but don't have the same opportunities that I have from simple differences like a high school degree, a college degree. So um, I'm really, really excited to be here and I'm excited to have these conversations with y'all. Y'all are like two of my favorite women on the staff. So here we are. Here we are. I'm excited to be here too as well, y'all. I think that this space is so necessary for us to talk about the things that need to be spoken about, that need to be shared amongst our team. So I, I deeply appreciate your presence here. And to really dive right in, um, I want to start with this uh, question in terms of you know, what's going on currently in our country um, is right now dealing with a race of relation issue, especially with the recent killings of um, unarmed Black people like Breonna Taylor, Jonathan Price, George Floyd, and many others who have and those who do not make the headlines, unfortunately. Managing the work uh, that you're doing in your daily lives while living through this community trauma is definitely not an easy feat. How has the RT colleagues showed up for you during those tough times? And how has the RT and, and all your colleagues let you down during those times? In those moments, what do you need from your work uh, in this community? I'll start with you, Nicole. Absolutely, that's a really great question. Um, first and foremost, um, I would like to just take a moment um, to elevate um, a member of the Black trans community um, that did not make the headlines um, Tony McDade was killed May 27, 2020, two days after George Floyd um, by the Tallahassee Police um, Department, which was the uh, third killing um, and murder um, that the Tallahassee Police um, Department um, honestly facilitated. Um, his life mattered, um, and his name was not said um, in the larger media, nor was it said um, in the Black community as well. Um, so I just want to, again, elevate um, that life um, and talk about, um, and then to just kind of go into that question. Um, so I am new to the RT, but not new to Teach for America at all. Um, and so, and this is also not the first time, you know, that Teach for America has been my home um, during a time of, you know, civil unrest. Um, so. I can really say that um, my colleagues of color um, have shown up for me um, and each other by like creating real space. Um, we create space, we find time in our busy days um, to truly prioritize um, very you know, um, formal spaces where we can all get together and just be authentic, but really one off spaces. You know, I joined the RT um, in the second week of August and that was coming right off of the layoffs. Um, I had been involved in the layoff in 2016, so I truly felt um, really connected to my Black staff on the team who were going through this. Um, I mean, immediately, Cerise gave me her number, and I'm texting, you know? Immediately, um, other Black women on the team were like, hey, reach out, let us know what's going on. Um, so truly, I think we 
We don't sometimes understand just the importance of that connection and those relationships and just being able to like let our guards down, not have to code switch and, and get that mental health support and that spiritual support. Um, I'll definitely say something that is a huge growth area for um, us as a CFA community, and I'm gonna call it out, um, us as black staff. Um, I do believe that the black community, um, since I've been a part of CFA, you know, has not been intentional about including um, black folks who also identify as part of the LGBTQ community. So for example, Tony McDade's name has not shown up even on internal communications about Black Lives Matter. Um, and I, and, and even beyond LGBTQ um, folks with, that are living with ability, um, sorry, with disabilities, um, like Therese mentioned, folks from low-income backgrounds um, and who are still, although they're on staff, um, you know, a low-income staff members. Um, and so those are just some ways that like I felt the love and support in family and also the ways I want to push our ability to grow. Thank you, Nicole. I mean, I can't agree with you anymore. Um, I do have some comments, but I want to pass it over to Cerise uh, to hear a little bit more from her as well. Yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> so one thing that definitely resonated with me when Nicole got um, hired was just for me in general, and maybe it's because I, I attended an HBCU, but it's always when you get into a space and you see other people that look like you, you always want to make sure they at least know that you're there um, and know that you are support. And so it was a priority for me when I found out that Nicole was being hired on staff as another black woman to just make sure that she felt support and love. And I think honestly and transparently it came from the same way that like, I think Josh um, Thomas scooped me up last year when I joined, like he was very intentional about making sure that he reached out to me on a personal level to give me support. Um, and a professional level. And I wanted to make sure that I was paying that forward. And I think that those moments um, are really important because you do remember those in your time. So when new people come in behind you, you feel um, more inclined to reach back and make sure that they have what they need. So, cause I remember how overwhelmed I felt when I joined staff last year. And I could only imagine how Nicole felt when now things are changing internally and she's new. But, um, I also would agree with that. I think that too, um, one thing that, I, and I don't, and it's definitely not an excuse, it's something that's not acceptable. I think that what um, is sometimes it's easy to forget, especially as a heterosexual black woman, is that there are elements of people's identity that are consistently dismissed or not um, elevated. And so like when you said, what, um, when you said his name, I was like, oh, I have no clue who this person is. Like I've never heard of this situation, don't know what happened. And also in realizing that that's my heterosexual privilege that I get to live in a space where I don't have to think about that concept, nor do I have to feel so inclined to dig deeper into what's going on in the LGBTQIA community, but also realizing that that's still someone that shares an identity with mine and that that's the part that people see, right? They don't, they don't, he wasn't, not saying that he wasn't, he obviously could have been targeted as well because of his sexual identity, but also because of the fact that he's a black person. And I, those are things that we connect on and I just, realize that I let that go over my head and that's that's not great that does not make me feel great um so we definitely I agree with that I also would say that for non-people of color with support um I just think more um consistent the same way I just acknowledge that I have not done my due diligence of making sure that I'm engaged with issues that are impacting the LGBTQIA community um encouraging non-people of color on staff to also be as actively engaged about issues happening in BIPOC communities um, because of the fact that it shouldn't be that I have to carry the burden of being a black woman every day and then come to work and then inform you all about my black pain that I experienced outside of work and then also start the conversation and then also bring the solutions 
and it just feels like after a while my back becomes very heavy of me trying to be myself and also trying to progress the organization forward it's like putting the the um the onus on the person that is harmed and that's just dangerous community and culture in general so i would just say that um if you are a non uh, bipoc person and you see something happen in the media you see something happen in your community and you know it's important and you know someone is hurting that does not look like you it is not performative to speak up it is not performative for you to reach out and just simply say hey i hear you it's not performative for you to make it intentional in a space to like acknowledge what's happening um it's not performative to be respectful of people's time and letting them know like take the day off or do what you need to do for you and giving them support um but it is performative when you don't actually authentically mean it which means you're only doing it for the sake of getting recognition for doing it so just being authentic in your your approach towards people because we're all humans like i think that it's it's not a person of color concept as far as like it's literally about if someone's mom died what energy would you give them the same way you would if someone that you know what i'm saying like those things are very relative and it's it's just you have the skills use them don't ignore it so yeah i cannot agree more with both of you and your points and that i love how each of you brought up a little bit different points here because what i'm hearing is is you know we want our our teammates to show up for us but we also want them to know this is how you show up for me and it's not performative for you to show up for me because if i know that you're coming from an authentic place and a transparent and honest place then it's not performative but i do think that like that distinction is necessary i also like um series how you mentioned like you know within our privileges there are so many other things as well because of our intersectionality that we may not realize um and i also loved your point of you know, like who sends down the elevator right like cerise you're sending down the elevator for nicole as she's a new team member joshua did it for you i have people who've done it for me like sebastian and fran and so these people do this um and it's, and it's so important for us right because if people don't send down the elevator how are we ever going to get up there right and i think that's a really important point for us because if we if we have people of color on the team don't continue that don't continue that mentorship i wonder what will the experience long term be for our team right so i think there's there's a level of understanding there that we all have to, to do and, and your point too Cerise, of like you know we're all human here um so you know we all make mistakes and that's totally okay but i think it's like you know dei is not is not a thing that you are a master at ever it's a journey and you're going to continue to learn and start un unlearning your biases and acknowledging your socialization so it does take time um, but I think this is a great segue to talk a little bit more about intersectionality and DEI and what, like, what does that really mean? And so can y'all discuss your approach to DEI and intersectionality? How does it come up for you? How can we build more coalitions and establish intersectional allyship as a baseline, not an aspiration? I'll actually kick it to Cerise first. Um, so I think, and that's one thing that I will say that I, I've always admired about um, Teach for America is its ability to bring these things forward, because I think that, no, I don't think, I know that in 2016, intersectionality was not a thing that was in the forefront of my mind, nor was it something that I prioritized to understand more about. Um, and it made me realize that there are so many different parts of my identity that overlap with other people that don't look like me or do look like me or what does make us different. And I knew it um, because I attended an HBCU. So I went to a school full of black people. And I, that was my first time realizing all black people are absolutely not the same. 
Um, and I hate that I had even fallen to the socialized concept that, oh, blackness is this thing, like, right, blackness is monolithic. Oh, you, you don't get a black card, or you lose your black card. And so those things were very much like embedded in my culture growing up. And it made me realize um, when I got to TFA specifically, they gave me the language to be able to better express that understanding that I already knew based off of experience. But I will say that when it comes down to DEI and intersectionality, I think that one thing I would like to see more of are people like Nicole that are always willing to bring it forward and have the conversations um, because it does become very easy for us to fall into our normal complacency of socialization um, and not talk about the intersectionality of it and not talk about different things. And I still, once again, hate that though, because then it puts the onus on somebody that identifies in that group to make it a priority. And that's the part that I'm trying to figure out how to focus and shift in my own thinking because it shouldn't be that the only time we think about people with disabilities is because we have a disabled person on the team. It shouldn't be the only time we think about um, issues that also impact the LGBTQIA community is when we have someone that identifies openly on the team that wants to prioritize that. But how do we as individuals, even as parts of privileged communities, bring forth that knowledge um, and intersectionality as an actual like priority, even when you don't identify in that group, and that's what I want to see more of. And that's what I'm still trying to figure out how I can be more intentional about um, for myself. Yes, I can't agree more on prioritization of what we need to do. I'm going to send it to Nicole because I know you have thoughts here, Nicole. Absolutely. Um, one, Jessalie, thank you so much. Um, I think what's like really important is like, again, that allyship is not something that like one day we'll be allies and that's kind of an aspirational goal. I think Teresa's really like modeling, like this is the thought process of like the beginnings of, or not even the beginning, but just like what allyship in action really looks like. And so I'm just like, it warms my heart to see it, but also be able to like just show it um, to our team. Um, when I think about like, how does intersectionality show up with the eye to me, like it has never not shown up. I think, you know, being a black woman in a black city um, I was surrounded, although I went to a PWI, I was surrounded by like wonderful black models, right? And like wonderful, um, really strong like evidence to like what black power looks like. Um, I have lived in a city where since I've been born, there has always been a black mayor. Um, and so really understanding what black excellence looks like, what is a part of my DNA, um, what I didn't ever see was someone who was black and cisgender or non-binary and, and a member of the queer community who was also excellent, who was also a leader, who was also, you know, intelligent. People who identify like me, the only time I saw them was in prison, you know? And so when I think about representation and even why I joined the core, like that's the whole reason why I even know about Peace for America is because um, I decided that like you can't, um, you know, show up as a monolith because we are leaving considerable amounts of our people behind. Um, and so I think my approach to um, not only just showing up, but designing um, DEI initiatives and really ensuring that in every space that I'm in, I am really elevating intersectionality. Um, I'm sorry, my approach to that is really showing up um, in a personal way um, and really like using myself as a tool. And I think Therese really brought up a good point is that that takes a lot of not only courage, but it takes a lot of self-care it takes a lot of, you know, um, mental health focus. It takes a lot of really like building up my inner um, spirit to be able to show up and make visible the invisible. 
Um, and I'm excited because as we grow in, in our allyship inside of our communities and in the broader community, it won't take that, you know, for the Nicole that's coming behind me, right? When I send down the elevator, the Nicole that's coming behind me will have the solutions around her coming up with her. Um, and I think that's just really important um, when I think about, you know, being a part of, you know, the DEI revolution, even inside of Peace for America back in 2013 and 2014, and literally being the only person um, who looked like me and identified like me who would speak up in my entire region. Um, and now, six years later, seeing that there are hundreds of folks, right, at a Brave Education Summit who are like, we're proud, we're here, we're queer. Um, I think it's just important for us to like pave the way and continue to have the conversations. Um, even if that looks like doing away with some of these frameworks, I'm gonna keep it real. Like I feel like sometimes these frameworks and all this jargon and all this like alignment to some random, I don't know, theory is keeping us from really having the real conversations and hearing from our actual community. Um, and so again, me showing up as a representation, a real life representation of um, Kimberly Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality. Me showing up um, as, you know, a real life representation of what it looks like to really create and develop a liberatory consciousness in a world that's like super oppressive um, is really my approach. And then I feel like, you know, the curriculum comes, you know, because it's really aligned with like real experiences um, and not just coming from the pages of a book. Um, so thank y'all for having me that as well, but yep. Thank you, Nicole. No, I mean, that's, that's uh, such a great point. And what I'm, I'm synthesizing y'all is like, where do we come up with our realness over the theories, over the things that, you know, people who are educators who said like, you know, this is what we've seen, this is the research versus when are we just having the real authentic conversations and getting the work done, right? Because I think there's value in both, but I think the latter is true for Teach for America and that we're very theory-based, foundational-based structures and systems and all these things that are necessary for us to operate. But I think at the same time limits us in the, in the ability for us to be authentic, to be real, to adapt on, on the fly when we need to. And I think one thing you pointed out, Nicole, is like, you know, Teach for America has the capacity to change. We all have the capacity to change. We've seen it. I joined the Corps in 2016 and I've seen the changes since then, which keep me inspired, but also keep me grounded because I know there's still so much work to do. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. And I, I think I want to talk a little bit more about like, what is the experience on staff right now? Like, what is it for folks? And so talking more about our Black affinity space and our, our Black staff members, I know one of our biggest concerns is Black staff retention, um, and specifically as well, uh, males. Um, so why do you think that hiring and retaining Black staff is presenting such a challenge um, for our team thus far? I'm gonna kick it to you, Sirs. Ooh, ah, this is like a, a eight layer cake. It's so deep. Um, okay, so, I will start by, can I, can I get transparent? Can I get super transparent here? Yeah, so transparent, yes. Correct, then let's go, let's ask off. So if we wanna be authentic and transparent about that issue, it's coming from the lack of pipeline because of the way that we consistently recruit for actual core members. We don't prioritize black men, let alone black core members. So henceforth, the pipeline is much smaller there for actual staff, because if we're honest, most of our staff are people that have done the core. So if we notice that 
systemically, there is an education system that has a smaller population of Black educators, specifically Black men. And then us as an organization, we continue to perpetuate that same stereotype by not over-prioritizing Black men or Black people in general to join our core, then turns into us having a staff that does not have a large BIPOC community to pull from as a pipeline to create for our staff because it's, it's all cyclical. And so I think the problem is that um, Teach for America does not take the opportunity to realize that if we are an organization based in equity, we need to create more opportunities for people of color to actually be engaged with us in the core first to then get them on staff. Um, also outside of that, the, the bar for, which, whom, for whom which we want to recruit to work here is very high, which is fine. I'm not saying that Black people do not meet that bar. I'm saying that if a Black person meets the bar for Teach for America, that means they meet the bar for other very high-paying, well-organized organizations. So if I'm a Black woman and I qualify to work for Teach for America, I also qualify to work for other really nice comp companies that can also offer me twenty-five to 30000 more to do the same job with less or do a job that does not require as much for more money. So then it turns into, if I'm a Black person and we know that a lot of Black people come from communities in which being a breadwinner is a priority or something that has to happen for them to take care of their family, of course, I'm not going to take a $20,000 pay cut to potentially do this work. Um, I might not, not saying that I won't, but I just might not. Um, and then when I look at the staff on the team and I realize that they are all people that do not look like me, it sounds like they're, the situations are very similar. I might as well go with the job that's gonna pay me a little bit more for my emotional and mental heartbreak, disparity, trauma, triggers, whatever happens. So I think that could be a thing. Some of that is very speculative. I get it. But the, some of that is very real. The pipeline portion is the problem. The other things after that I mentioned are speculative. I think when it comes down to retention, it's the same issue. Um, retention is the same problem. Once people become a part of Black staff and they realize that Black staff is limited, um, and then they have a lot of these... Um, it's traumatizing and triggering experiences and I don't think some of it is based in just the work that Teach for America does in general like we do work that's based in trauma that impacts people of color so it's going to happen but then there are also elements of Teach for America in which they fall they fall into the pit of the trauma because they don't intentionally make sure that they make a mark to say this is trauma happening to the community that we are prioritizing and we are prioritizing not to make you relive this trauma. We are prioritizing to change that. And Teacher America doesn't take that stance on a lot of issues. So now I have to already engage with traumatizing work because of the work that we do every day. And then I have to engage with an organization that is not trying to be intentional about making sure that they fix those traumas or those triggers so that they don't impact me, um, so that I don't feel that way. And I can get paid 20,000 more dollars or get a promotion quicker at another organization well, I just had an interview. It was so nice working for you guys. Thank you so much. Um, and so that also happens with other, other promotional opportunities. I think also realistically, no, not even no offense, all offense. Um, Teach for America prioritizes a lot of white supremacist standards of success. Um, a lot of our standards are compared to whiteness. And so things like being how organized you are is a, a major priority here as an organization, which I understand the importance of um, organization, but when it comes down to conversations that I've had with people where they've told me that I meet goals, I do this, I do that, 
but I'm not organized. And that's why I'm not getting a certain proficiency in this. And that's impacting my overall evaluation as a, as a worker. Is that really what you hired me for? Did you hire me to be organized and create Excel documents that are pretty that people like to use and look at? Or did you hire me to recruit people to do Teach for America? Um, and when I do those things, that doesn't get me a promotion, but I have coworkers that don't look like me, but they are as organized as can be, but they are not doing their actual job they get paid for. And now they're being promoted to different positions above mine and they came in after me or with me. I then start to feel like I don't have value here. I then start to feel like my voice does not matter. I then start to feel like my work does not matter. And so then I find solace in other spaces or I look for another job. And then I don't also tell my other black friends or people of color that I know that they should try to work here. Um, and it feeds itself once again, a whole nother cycle barreling outside of a big cycle itself. It's like, it's like one of those old bicycles where there's the big wheel in the front and the little wheel in the back. That's exactly what it's like. So that's my thought on it. Yeah, I, I feel that. And I think from what I'm hearing from both of you, it's just like, what is the experience like? Like all the way going back to college when you might interact with Teach for America. And then when you're in the core, what does that look like? What supports do you get? What, you know, what is that feeling like? And then when you join the RT, what is that like too? So it's like these three places where like Sari said, like so many other people who work on staff with us are previous core members. And so our alumni of our organization. So when we think about that retention, I think, you know, Cerise, you, you mentioned like maybe this is, has no truth to it and this is just me talking, but no, I think there's a lot of truth there because if we don't look at this entire thing linearly and say, okay, well, if we're not thinking about how we're recruiting folks in college, like are we accessing our, the groups that we should be? Uh, when we should be? Are we talking to enough of those people? And then what does the coaching look like when they're in the core? Are they coached by predominantly white women, which is the case in most of the places that we have regions for? Um, and then on the RT, who, who's your manager? Who's on your team? Are you the only black person? Are you the only person of color on your team? What is that experience like? And so I think it's essential for us to really think more of, you know, what are the sports that do very much need to be in place? But at the same time, I think we have to really dismantle the system where, you know, we're, we're seeing the effects of black staff retention at the end, where we really need to be targeting at, targeting at the beginning. Um, and so I think there's just a lot of work for us to do, but I think this is essential because for me, when I think about like, what is the true drive of TFA and if it is to support people of color and to get an equitable education, if our staff does not resemble that, I think it's a huge misstep. And if we can't retain our people, there's also a misstep. And I think what you named in terms of like economics, um, for both of you named it, and that's a true thing. Um, and I think transparency across the board will allow us to be able to keep more folks and keep people who want to stay energized in this work because we became core members for a reason, right? We joined staff for a reason. And so those reasons need to be elucidated and expanded upon because if not, I think that's why we're going to continue to have these retention issues um, over the long term. Um, and I just love like being able to hear from y'all um, so in intensely because I think like this really highlights the need for these kinds of conversations and the authentic authenticity and the realness and the honesty because, you know, if we're not doing that, we ain't talking. And I, I want to be clear, like we're not talking if we're not being real. Um, and so that's why sometimes those theories and frameworks might limit us because we're, we're, we're inside this bubble where we need to just really be talking like we're doing right now. And so our time is almost ending now, y'all. But I did want to ask you um, with a couple minutes that we have left, you know, when you think about 
the next generation of children of color? What do you hope to be true for them? What do you want your legacy to be? I'm gonna kick it to Nicole. Um, that is why I say in this work, um, that is why I stay on the front lines um, and you know try to um, redirect all the arrows and bullets that I can um, because I'm thinking about um, the next generation of kids of color from these backgrounds that are just beautiful and amazing. Um, I want them to know that they are powerful, they are valued, and they are here for a reason on this earth and they have a purpose and they absolutely deserve, right? Like this is not a privilege that you get a quality education. It's not a privilege that you are a part of a community that loves you and sees you. You deserve that. And I wanna ensure that every adult that has anything to do with the world in which our students are growing up in understands that. Um, if I had it my way, I would, you know, push for every single person on this earth to be an ally to someone else with their um, privileged identities and really understands what it means to, to walk in empathy um, and, you know, really open up to changing your mindset when they are harmful to other folks. So I, I really am, again, just hopeful that our kids of color just know who they are and know that, again, they are powerful and deserving beyond belief. Um, I think for me, first of all, retweet, ditto, um, times two, <laughs> times exponential power, everything is okay. <laughs> first. <laughs> um, second, I think um, with that, thinking specifically of like kids that look just like me, um, wanting them to live in a space where we are continuing to go, go beyond um, this concept of survival and into thriving. You know, I think that I've had the privilege to see what that looks like. Like I see my mother and my grandmother and they were very much enriched in the space of survival, right? Um, trying to make the best of what they had, trying to make something out of nothing, trying to make lemonade with lemons and like with two lemons and trying to make enough lemonade to last a lifetime. And I want to see specifically for our black kids, them moving into a space where they don't have to feel like they only have two lemons to make a lifetime of lemonade. I want them to have 20, 30, 40, an infinite amount of lemons for them to make whatever they want. It doesn't even have to be lemonade. You can make strawberry lemonade, raspberry lemonade. You can make tea. I don't care. Like, yeah. And yeah. have the opportunities and the abilities to do things that people before them have never done. And I want them to see that in themselves. Um, I want them to push narratives and change concepts of monolithic blackness. So that um, you don't have to have these conversations with your kids about, oh, get your hair straightened for your interview or be careful going to the HBCU. You know, people don't, you want to go to a PWI because you want to get respect. Like I want those conversations to change. I want the conversations around black names to change that unique black names are ghetto. Like I want to change the, the anti-blackness within our black communities. I want to change the anti-blackness within our overall society. I want them to, the same way Nicole said, I want them to feel like this community and this world loves them. Um, and if they, and if they feel like they, it does not, make them love you, make them accept you. Don't change who you are to be more accepted, but make them understand that they have to accept you the same way they accept themselves. Um, and so I think that is moving into a space of thriving where we're not worried about where our next meal is coming from or what time 
we have to be home or uh, where we're going to live or where we're going to sleep tonight. But we're worried about what are our, our dreams and our goals and things that are in our hearts and not things that we have to do to just make it to tomorrow. Um, and I want that to be true for all people of color specifically because I think that that happens too often. And that's the part that people don't connect with and understand is that um, minorities in this country work so hard to just make it from one day to the next. They're worried about their 24 hours. And then there's an entirely different group of people in this country that don't have those same worries. Um, and they can, they can plan and, and afford to spend time mentally and emotionally focusing on 10, 20, 30 years from now. And I want people of color and black kids specifically to start having those same experiences and those same goals because they deserve the longevity of it. They deserve to dream long-term and know what they want to do in five, 10, 20, 30 years and not have to just focus on what they're going to do next month or tomorrow. Um, so I just want them to live a flourishing, happy, full life. I could retweet, resend, forward, everything that y'all just said, like, that's perfect. I mean, that's the ideal world where we are actually striving for equity, where we can see it and we can feel it. And it's not just the word that we have that we throw around. Um, because I think it, that there, there's, there's a fear that that could be the case, that these words are developed to just be a theory and not really be real. Um, and I, I just want to say thank you to both of you for being so honest today and just talking about the real stuff that matters. Um, because I think for, for me, it's also like, wow, like, I, I don't know as much unless I ask the questions. And I think that that's the reason of this podcast is to really ask the questions that people need to learn more about. Um, and so that the follow-up conversations can be those authentic conversations more in full group. And so I also just want to say thank you to both of you because I think y'all don't notice how much you are actually sending down the elevator to other people so that survival can turn into thriving because we shouldn't be surviving. We should be thriving. There is, there's no need for that in terms of like just the capabilities that we have with our authenticity, with our uniqueness, but they're all those things I think, you know, we should be thriving. Um, everyone in this country should be thriving. And so I want to highlight y'all for being so courageous and being here today and speaking your truth in such a manner that is sometimes not easy. Um, and knowing that, you know, like you mentioned earlier, like who do we put the onus on of speaking about these things? And we are putting an onus right now on two black women. Um, and so I know that that's also very difficult, but I'm very appreciative to learn more about y'all and to understand this perspective from a new way too, because even though I'm a person of color does not mean I understand your experience to the slightest. And I think it's important to highlight that because if we truly are going to turn survival into thriving, we need to understand one another. So thank you to both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. We are black bookends for white books, heavy white books, books that love slinging their weight and apologizing and slinging more. We keep holding them up. We keep bending under their weight, bending beyond recognition till we don't recognize ourselves, till it's time to hire, I mean recruit, I mean buy a new black bookend they keep naming that they are what they are without ever changing who they are but we we are to take the offering of awareness and never ask for action for books to hold themselves up because what would a bookend be to white books if they no longer could bear the weight